Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'm Sunny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. And I'm very pleased to be joined today by Andrea Chalupa, who is the writer of Mr. Jones, which came out. I feel like it got lost in the COVID shuffle, but it's one of my favorite movies from the last couple of years. It's about the efforts of Gareth Jones to uncover to the world the mass starvation in Ukraine as a result of Soviet food policies and other other active measures against the the Ukrainians. And I'm I wanted to have Andrea on today to talk about the movie and kind of the uh, I don't know, the the projection of Russian treatment of Ukraine in mass media in general. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting topic, obviously, right now and a really kind of heartbreaking topic. So thank you for being on the show, Andrea. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, so let's talk about writing this movie. I, I This is your first screenplay, right? Yes, it was my learning script. <laughs> uh, uh, so what was that? What was that process like? I mean, I, I, I think it's just from a pure filmmaking perspective before we get to the, the serious stuff. Uh, what was that like sitting down to write this and, and getting it to agents and, and producers and all that? Well, it was obviously quite a journey. It was roughly something like 14 years. I studied Soviet history in college. I was supposed to be working on my very big, serious history thesis. And instead, I was procrastinating by digging into the world of Walter Duranti, this creepy guy I'd heard so much about growing up. So I knew as a kid, I like any Ukrainian, like many Ukrainians, I knew as a kid that Stalin deliberately mass murdered several millions of people, the vast majority in Ukraine, and that the New York Times Moscow bureau chief, Walter Duranti, deliberately covered it up. So I had the whole idea for some larger story, you know, to sort of raise awareness um, growing up. Like I would, I would talk about this to friends. I'd talk about this to teachers. And in college, I remember just procrastinating and um, digging into Duranti and reading about how he was lovers with the Satanist Aleister Crawley, who inspired the Rolling Stones to write Sympathy for the Devil. They shared a lover uh, drawn to to write these Latin hymns for these black magic sex orgies they'd have in 1920s Paris. And as a college kid, you're like, this is amazing. And so that's when I first got the idea to turn this guy into a film to try to get justice for all the Ukrainians who suffered under Stalin. And obviously, like by that time, you know, I'd seen films like Schindler's List. I'd seen films like Girl in the Mist. My parents were wonderful in exposing me as a child to complex challenging films. And, and that really entrenched in me this idea of cinema as justice, bearing witness as justice. So I wanted to give that to the Ukrainian people, to my family. Growing up in Northern California, my grandfather, who lived through Stalin's genocide family in Ukraine, was the world to me. So I wanted to bring back a piece of him. I wanted to feel closer to him by making this film. And of course, I had zero connections in Hollywood. I had no idea what I was doing. And and my first jobs out of college, I was working in newsrooms. I was writing news articles. I was dealing with fact checkers. So I had no formal dramatic training. So the whole process of writing a screenplay was extremely painful for someone coming from a history and journalism background. The whole concept of poetic license was terrifying to me. And it, was, it actually took a struggling filmmaker who is no longer a struggling filmmaker, thank God, but a struggling filmmaker 
that I happen to be friends with by the name of uh, Ritesh Batra, who has since gone on to make movies with multi-million dollar budgets. He did The Lunchbox, which was picked up by Sony Pictures Classics. He's done, I believe, films for the BBC. Mm-hmm. He's he's somebody that you could get money. If you attach him as to your script today, you could get money for your script. But back then, he and I were just bitter, <laughs> struggling <laughs> people. And I gave Ritesh my script. And he was like, what the hell is this? Why are you giving me a history lesson? Throw this out and give me a good story. So Ritesh really came in and played the role of Patrick Swayze to my Jennifer Grey in Dirty Dancing and getting me to like loosen up my hips and actually write something that was cinematic. But it was a very painful process. And needless to say, when I was shopping it around to big producers in the in the UK, because I thought, OK, it's a British film, big producers in New York and in L.A., people would read the script and be shocked that there was this genocide famine in Ukraine. Producers would come back and take meetings with me just to get a history lesson because they were appalled by not having known of this sooner. But then they'd always pass on it because the story was so sad. And it was around the time of 2015 when, you know, I had spent years juggling a lot of freelance jobs, juggling a lot of consulting jobs, watching friends in media and journalism who I started off with shoot past me and get all these fancy jobs that big fancy magazines and cable news. And I I was feeling very left behind professionally because I was still juggling random jobs just to have time to work on my script. And it was around, it was 2015. I remember I wanted to give up. I felt pathetic. I wasn't getting anywhere. And then a group of Russian friends here in New York City reached out to me to join them for uh, a march in New York City in solidarity with Boris Nemtsov's march in Moscow. Boris Nemtsov was a charismatic Russian opposition leader. He was handsome. He was uh, he had a heart of gold. He was an honorary Ukrainian. He brought Ukrainians and Russians together. He would give these fiery speeches in Kiev saying that Crimea is Ukraine. We must give back Crimea. And because he was such an inspiring figure, of course, he had to die. And so in the days leading up to this march, organized by friends in New York City, Boris Nemtsov was murdered in the shadow of the Kremlin and and joining my Russian friends and Ukrainian friends in in turning what was supposed to be an anti-war march, Boris Nemtsov's anti-war march, it became a vigil for Boris Nemtsov and just seeing the haunted shock in my the eyes of my Russian friends and just seeing just like all hope drain from their faces and just being so furious about that. I went back to my script and I did practically what was like an angry page one rewrite where I just grabbed the reader by the throat and just how dare you not care about what's happening right now? How dare you not care? Because it's it's happening again. And I sent that angry draft to Agnieszka Holland, to her email directly, because I happened to know her through a mutual friend, the historian Tim Snyder. Mm-hmm. And People around me said, like, don't give your hopes up. Agnieszka just rejected the best script I've ever read. Or Agnieszka is rejecting a lot of projects with big names attached. So have a plan B. I had no plan B. Like, if, I just didn't know what else to do. And I, I, you know, Agnieszka got the script. I flew to Toronto to the film festival where she was on the jury. I took a meeting with her. I was so nervous out of my mind. And the most striking thing of that meeting was that she actually, now that I know Agnieszka, she actually was more nervous than I was. Like she was, t- she was selling me on, we're going to do this. We're going to do, we're going to shoot in Ukraine. We're going to, she, as soon as I met her, her mind was at work and she was, she was just 
pitching me on how we were going to get the film made. And I was, I was like, wait, and I left that meeting completely dazed thinking, wait, did she just say yes to directing my script? <laughs> and so it took a while for that to sink in. And mm. that was probably the most, that was probably the only time Agnesh has ever been a bit, you know, tea with the queen with me ever. Cause after that we got, we got, we fell into a rhythm of a very casual relationship and being in the trenches together, but she fought like hell to get the script made. She was turning down other projects so she could get this script made. At one point we had Western investors, Western investors with offering us millions of euros at a time when we desperately needed to raise millions of euros where we were so far away from production. And these investors, Western investors would say to Agnieszka, if you fire your screenwriter, we'll give you this money, hire our screenwriter because they didn't like some of the things I did with the script. Mm -hmm. They all had a problem with act two, the big Ukraine sequence, which is very Mm -hmm. graphic. They wanted something more, um, dumbed down, frothier, more palpable for a Western audience, safer. And Agnieszka, each time when we had millions of euros at stake, she said, you know, no, absolutely, I'm not firing her. And so she stuck by me. She fought like hell. And the whole thing came together within three years. We were on set. Well, that's crazy. I mean, I uh, so folks who haven't seen the movie, it's on Hulu right now. If you if you subscribe to Hulu, I think you can rent it on Amazon or wherever. But you should watch it. Uh, it it's really good. And that that whole middle segment, is I mean, it's it's the most striking cinematic thing in the film by far. I mean, it, the the color palette is all washed out. It's like a it's like a vision of frozen hell. I mean, it's it's really it's it's terrifying and striking. I can't believe people wanted to to cut that out of the movie. Yeah, we dealt with a lot of development hell just to get this made. It was like every inch forward was a foot back. It was just climbing a mountain and being thrown back. And um, so, yeah, we were vindicated ultimately with that. And we had total creative control on set. Uh, The actors came in, all of them, um, actors that had big roles, smaller roles. Everybody came in and and had their way with the script. The script became a living, breathing thing on set. We didn't have any corporation or any conference table somewhere in New York, LA, or London, micromanaging this or going through all the various cuts. It was all of us working together in this cr- big creative frenzy, bringing our own uh, fingerprints to the script and really making it come alive. And it was just a, such a beautiful thing because if so many actors in this film, Polish actors, Ukrainian actors, of course, the British cast, were almost like cameo roles. If you look at the big sex orgy scene in Durante's Moscow apartment, because Durante historically lived an extremely hedonistic lifestyle in, in Moscow. But if you look if you look at our relatively toned down <laughs> Durante orgy scene in Moscow, the band, the jazz band that's playing, that's probably like the best jazz band of musicians in all of Poland a country obviously with a history of extraordinary musicians and composers and those guys would just when the set would empty out and people would go to lunch those guys would just keep playing for the hell of it they would just play Chopin to an empty set so we had extraordinary talent coming in and out of that set all the time bringing their flavor to it and that was one of the most gratifying beautiful experiences I've ever had yeah I'm curious what the earlier versions of the script look like i mean was it was it more focused on durante than what wound up in the film or that's or a great what? that's a great question so i spent years on the research including reading primary sources of that time and one guy whose orbit i got stuck in for a very long time was this 
journalist, an American journalist for United Press International, UPI. He um, went to Moscow and had a grand old time. I, I, if my memory serves me correctly, I believe his wife even got a job in the Moscow theater because that's how the expats were treated. They had all this access to Moscow. They could live however they wanted. Um, so when Gareth Jones comes to town and starts interviewing all of them and, and really blowing the lid off of this big famine, um, this guy, Eugene Lyons, leaves Moscow and writes a tell-all. And, and one of the chapters in his tell-all, which is the, the book is called Assignment in Utopia, one of the chapters in his tell-all is called something like The Moscow Press Conceals a Famine. And it's all about how the Moscow foreign press were herded into a hotel suite with the chief Soviet censor who struck a deal with them and saying, we will protect your access to the Soviet regime if you write stories in your newspapers saying that Gareth Jones is lying. And they struck that devil's bargain and they, they made that deal. And this journalist, Eugene Lyons, confessed to this. And, and not only that, George Orwell would later go on to review Assignment in Utopia. And George Orwell's essay about his, his review about this book reads like he's describing Putin's Russia today. So I did do versions of the script where I focused more on the entourage of the foreign press in Moscow, where Eugene Lyons, the guy I've been talking about, played a larger role. And in my mind, I kept thinking it's like the hangover, but set in Moscow, you know, where <laughs> Gareth was sort of like in the orbit. And Gareth was sort of like this Christ figure against all of these sort of um, – frat boy types that were just trying to get, you know, protect their careers, make their wives happy, have money for their mistresses and just live a sustainable, some sometimes luxurious life in exchange, you know, for access. So it's sort of this big crime, this big group crime of access journalism. Yeah. Did you get any pushback for the depiction of Durante? I know, uh, you know, some some folks get fairly annoyed when you talk about accurately uh, how kind of debauched and unethical his his work was at the time. Yeah. So here's the thing. The more I dug in to Walter Durante, because obviously I had a run in with Aaron Sorkin. Like I, I, I had a chance to go up to Aaron Sorkin just randomly and be like, excuse me, can I get a, can I get screenplay advice from you? And I asked him, like, what do I do with a villain to humanize a villain? And he said, the villain always has to be pleading his case of why he should be let into heaven. So I kept trying to look for Durante's human side, his his justification. And the more I dug into him, the more evil I kept coming across. The guy was just an empty shell of a person. It's like sort of how do you write a screenplay today about Tucker Carlson or Donald Trump? How do you find the justification, the, the human side, the sim sympathetic side? I, it's not there with those guys. It's not there with Walter Duranty. The more I dug into Gareth Jones, the more good I found, the more courage I found, um, the more inspiration I found of how we, we should be living our lives, you know, speaking truth to power and having greater moral courage. Gareth Jones was a huge inspiration to me. Durante was just vile the more I, I uncovered about him. To give you an example, he went to some um, hedonistic party in Moscow, some avant-garde party, where they're bricking a Russian girl and a Russian boy inside the wall at the party. And they thought that was so funny. And if you watch the film you see that Durante has a child. He had a live-in maid that he got pregnant. They had a child together. 
And when things became too hot for Duranty in Moscow, when the truth of the famine was finally coming out to some extent, he got out of there. A lot of those guys got out of there. They couldn't hand, they couldn't live the lie anymore, Duranty included. What do you think happened to the child and the mother of the child? He left them behind. He left them behind. And there were some reports that one of his friends or acquaintances was stuck feeding them, like stuck trying to get money to them. And we, our lawyers on the film, try to find like what happened to Durante's son. Is he going to reemerge? Like, they couldn't find him. Like He just mm-hmm. disappeared. So, you know, God bless Peter Sarsgaard, because Peter Sarsgaard, who plays Walter Durante, he's known for playing all of these sort of slimy roles brilliantly. In real life, Peter Sarsgaard is the world's greatest sweetheart. Like he's just such a he's like the Fonz. He's just so cool. Like wherever he goes, you hear birds chirping and luau music. And he, he came, he approached Durante with this heart of gold. He he was the guy on set that was always saying, Well, maybe Durante was feeling this way. Like he really was a lawyer for Durante. And so I do have to point out as 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 brilliant as Peter Sarsgaard is at playing these type of characters, he really is extremely generous to Walter Duranti. The historical Walter Duranti was just vile, vile in so many ways. Yeah, uh, it's funny. Uh, Sarsgaard has played uh, both like the most scrupulously ethical journalist I've ever seen on film <laughs> mm-hmm. in Shattered Glass, and the most like unscrupulous, unethical journalist I've ever seen uh, on film. Almost, I, I don't know. There's there's a long list of unethical journalists on film, but Walter Duranti right at the top of that list. Absolutely. Here. Um, let's talk a little bit about how the, the kind of framing device here, because you're, you're the author of Orwell and the Refugees, the untold story of Animal Farm, and that plays a part in how the movie unfolds. It, you get a little bit at the beginning and the end with, with Orwell in, it, in the middle when he meets Gareth Jones. How, how did you work that into the screenplay? And what was, what was your goal there to, to, in terms of bringing it to audiences? Yeah, so that was, so Orwell worked his way into the script because, Originally, it was Gareth versus Durante, which is a tragic story because Gareth Jones is killed. He dies young. And then Durante goes off to live to a ripe old age and die peacefully in Florida. And so um, and that script was just not going anywhere with anyone. It was just such a depressing outcome. And I turned to George Orwell for inspiration. I, I picked up a copy of Animal Farm. Christopher Hitchens wrote the introduction to that to that copy. And in it, Hitchens made some reference to how Orwell struggled for years to get Animal Farm published. And finally, some relatively small press put out some copies. And one miraculously ended up in the hands of Ukrainian refugees who immediately understood the book's profound significance. And that right away struck me as, wow, I, that is my happy ending. Orwell picks up where Gareth left off and these refugees get the truth out into the world. So I had that in the script at one point and I went to visit my uncle for a New Year's Eve dinner with my with my family and I was catching him up on what I'd been up to. I told him what I just told you about how I'm more, you know, my script, the latest version has Orwell and the refugees. My uncle looked at me and said, oh, yeah, I remember um, we, we were reading Animal Farm in the refugee camp when I was a kid. And so my, my aunt gets up from the table and comes back with this yellowed version of George Orwell's Animal Farm translated in Ukrainian. And this was produced in a Ukrainian refugee camp after World War II. And my uncle had a copy. 
And so there was this whole incredible story of how you how these Ukrainian hipster kids stranded in, in stranded in World War II refugee camps discovered Orwell because one of them was learning English by listening to the BBC and reading the British press. And he hunted down Orwell's home address in London after reading Animal Farm and wrote him a letter in flowery broken English and saying, who are you and how did you know what we lived through? And by the way, we've already started translating Animal Farm into Ukrainian so everyone can read it and know that they're not alone. And they asked Orwell for a preface. Like, could you please write a preface explaining who you are? And this was significant because Orwell famously put in his will that he didn't want any biography or anything written about him. He had some line where he said every life examined would, would just be a humiliation to that person, which is true. And here Orwell wrote this deeply personal letter to these Ukrainian refugees that became the preface of their book. And he describes how he and his wife went off to Spain to fight fascists on their honeymoon and that and being hunted by Stalin's agents in Spain opened his eyes up to the Stalin myth and how he tried to break through the disinformation, the propaganda that that had so captured the left that he was a part of, that he decided to write this children's book, Animal Farm, a story so simple that even a child could understand it. And that preface that Oral wrote for the Ukrainian translation of Animal Farm, the first translation ever in any other book than the author's native English, that remains today as his most personal description of why he wrote Animal Farm. And and so my uncle, my, so when my uncle what, what immigrated to New York City with my grandfather, who inspired this whole project, with my mother when she was a tiny child, when they immigrated to New York City with only what they could carry, they took with them this Ukrainian translation of, or- of Orwell's Animal Farm. And now I have it today. And so I, I just felt that Orwell needed to be incorporated into it somehow to give hope that the truth cannot be killed. Yes, mm-hmm. Gareth is murdered. Yes, there, there's all this documentation that the last men he was seen with were connected to the Soviet secret police. Um, and the, and that effectively buried the story for some time. Then along comes George Orwell and gets the truth out through the power of art. And so the idea was to sort of weave him in as a Greek chorus, like that, that pressure, the eye of history watching, and the reminder that the truth cannot be killed. And that's what Agnieszka loved. Like she really, she... You know, other people throughout the development, how we went through, were like, Orwell doesn't work, no Orwell. And I understand that some of the reviews felt very strongly about that. But Agnieszka and I always felt such a strong connection to Orwell because he was part of this larger story, a larger story of of um, all this disinformation and propaganda that has been so effective in bearing Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine. Most people today have never even heard of it because this the, the Kremlin has been so successful. Yeah, I mean, this is it's it's interesting to hear you talk about going to meet with producers and other filmmakers and having them ask for the history lesson here, because it really is. It's striking to me that we have so many movies about the Holocaust and for good reason, obviously, world mm-hmm. historical tragedy. But it it really does feel like there are relatively few about the Holodomor or Stalin's other crimes. I mean, the, I, I can think of two off the top of my head, uh, Mr. Jones and the death of Stalin. And that's about it. I mean, I like it's it's very odd to me. Yeah, it is very odd. And I don't, you know, obviously all genocides, all dark chapters of history deserve several films. 
several TV series because I think they're just a way to engage people on these topics. You know, my, my par- like I said, my, my parents, when I was growing up, they weren't showing me documentaries about war. They were showing me dramatic, beautiful works of art films like Schindler's List. Right. So I so right. as a kid, I got this exposure to world history and, and complicated topics and, and important information through cinema, through through gorgeous films. And so I don't know why there aren't more Soviet history films. I mean, if I had all the money in the world, I would just spend the rest of my days producing Soviet history <laughs> films because so many nations were captured under Russian colonialism and every single nation has stories like this stories of heroes stories of unthinkable atrocities my father-in-law is on wikipedia for leading a student uprising in 1956 bucharest in solidarity with the hungarian uprising next door he and his friends when they're in medical school were listening to pirate radio of hungarian students saying wherever you are please rise up please join us we have to we have to fight for our freedom now is the time we're doing it in hungary do it wherever you are and so my father-in-law in his 20s a medical student took this very seriously and they acted he even broke up with his girlfriend for her own protection and he was lying in his dorm room ready the next day to march to lead a march that was how they're going to start and he gets a knock on the door and there's about like half a dozen securitate agents the secret the, the the security force of romania of communist romania and they dragged him out and threw him in a prison packed full of other students just like him where he was literally told you're here to die and he felt he spent six months in a communist concentration camp. And he continued his medical studies inside the camp by treating the torture wounds of the other prisoners. And it's just a miracle how he was freed. So that's who raised my husband, yeah. a man who had suffered six years of a communist concentration camp, including torture, things that he just would not talk about for years to his family. But little bits of it would show up in all of these chilling ways. You know, like they they were watching a movie one time as a family and these prisoners had shackles around their ankles. And my father-in-law spoke up and saying, oh, no, that's not how shackles look like. That's actually not what they look like and how the prisoners would wear them because he wore them for years. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that that is a crazy story. I, I uh, we could talk about this all day, but there are so many stories like this that we could discuss. But uh, we are in the midst of another crisis right now. The reason I had asked you on uh, the show is because there uh, there's going to be there's a fundraiser going on for the Kiev Independent. Agnieszka Holland and James Norton uh, is they're going to be doing an online event. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes and in this email. Everybody click on that. Give what you can watch Mr. Jones and then go go listen to that talk. But what are some of the parallels that you see, if any, between what is happening now in uh, in Ukraine with Russian aggression and what happened before? Well, I think that's what's been so traumatizing about what's happening in Ukraine is because history is repeating. For years under Putin, the cult of Stalin has been coming back. Stalin, there's statues of, of Stalin going up across Russia. Um, textbooks are being edited to glorify Stalin. Never before have Russians, like, since the age of Stalin, like, Stalin is now seen as a great hero thanks to Putin. And we should have taken that seriously because Stalin committed several genocides and arguably his worst was against the Ukrainian people. 
And Putin has used all sorts of genocidal language in how he talks about Ukraine, insisting that Ukraine is not a nation, Ukraine does not exist. His propagandist, who's overseeing these so-called peace talks with Ukraine, says the same exact thing, that, that Ukraine is not a nation, Ukraine does not exist. If you look up the definition of genocide, it includes um, attacks, uh, killing people deliberately as part of a nation to destroy that nation. It's not just ethnic cleansing, it's, it's a political murder. And so if Putin gets his way, as he's clearly determined to do, and he absorbs Ukraine, what you're going to see is an all-out attack on Ukrainian national identity, just like under Stalin, where you're going to have leading Ukrainian, you're going to have Ukrainian leaders and, and leading thinkers purged, murdered. You're probably going to have the language banned. You're going to have a lot of Ukrainian um, institutes and, and cultural groups banned. They're already bombing museums um, in Ukraine, as well as hospitals and and orphanages and kindergartens and all of it. So um, it's what's happening in Ukraine fits the very strict definition of genocide by Putin. He's If, if you listen to experts on, on Putin, he's been obsessed with Ukraine. If you follow his military history, what he did in Chechnya, Georgia, and Syria, this is the biggest military uh, operation he's ever done. This is He's way over his skis on this one. He's never done anything this ambitious. And the reason why he's taking such a big leap right now um, is because he's had this years-long obsession with Ukraine, that Ukraine needs to be absorbed, that Ukraine betrayed him, um, that Ukraine, given the history, was key to bringing down the Soviet Union. The first big referendum happened in Ukraine for independence, which brought down the Soviet Union. And Ukraine has been moving towards democracy and out of his orb, out of Russia's orbit ever since. Ukraine also gives refuge to Russian activists, Russian journalists, and also activists and journalists from Belarus. That's also a betrayal in Putin's eyes. And so it's, it's traumatic to see a genocide again playing out after I've spent all these years researching and writing Stalin's genocide. So I think when when Putin was bringing back Stalin all those years, we should have taken that a lot more seriously and not laughed him off as some exotic figure, right? Mm-hmm. The reason yeah. the reason why Ukrainians are not afraid of him is because they see they see him for who he is. They see him as the weak little-minded person that he is, whereas the rest of the world treats him like this Bond villain and gives him all this mystique and respect. And and he takes advantage of that. But in his own neighborhood, he's a laughingstock for Ukrainians. And that's why they're fighting the way they are, because they see who Putin really is. They're not afraid of him. And unfortunately, the fear that he holds over the rest of the world has, is what has emboldened him all this time. I just interviewed a leading activist for Syria from Syria who was saying if we had these sanctions that the West is finally doing against Putin, if we had this back in 2015, let's say, under Obama, we would have saved lives in Syria. We would have saved mm-hmm. lives in Ukraine. We would not be here today. So everything the West is doing is unfortunately too late and should have been done years ago, but they didn't take Putin seriously when he was giving us all of these very serious signs, including bringing back Stalin. And I just want to share a story about that. Russia's oldest and most prestigious human rights organization, Memorial, which for years has documented 
Stalin's terror, which is which for years has documented atrocities committed during the Soviet Union and including documenting uh, individual lives and giving names back to the nameless. They had a historian who discovered a mass grave from the 1930s. His life was destroyed by the Russian authorities for punishment, for uncovering a mass grave, because that's how um, that is how vile Putin has been in glorifying Stalin, that historians can't even do their work by uncovering a mass grave from Stalin's terror. This man was arrested. He had his daughter taken away from him. There were accusations against him that were completely unfounded, that he was molesting his daughter. He had his life completely destroyed. And this organization, Memorial, dared to show Mr. Jones in Moscow. That night, there was a group of like pro-Putin thugs that came in that disrupted the screening. The authorities were called to break up this disruption. And instead, the authorities started confiscating uh, laptops, phones, and other things of Memorial, trying to arrest people, holding them in until 2 a.m., interrogating them, saying, how did you learn about this screening? And, and then shortly after that, Memorial was shut down. So, and, and so, the, so Russia's largest, most respected human rights organization is gone now. That it, and so it, it's just this crime against truth itself. It's, it's this re-traumatizing of the Russian people, not just Ukrainians, because the Russian people suffered greatly under Stalin. And all of us, you know, who came from this part of the world, who, you know, we have our grandparents, we have our parents now who are watching all this, who are you know, having their hearts broken all over again by by the by what the Kremlin is doing yet again. And I, I think people, you know, in this whole debate of is, is Putin mad or not? Is Putin crazy? Has he lost his mind? What we're witnessing and what has been there all along with Putin has been incredibly consistent. It's KGB sadism. This is mm. this is what the Soviet Union was. It was sadistic. It were these, there were these sadistic policies throughout the entire existence of the Soviet Union. So Putin has been incredibly consistent. And if the West had just un- respected history, understood Soviet history, if we had greater awareness of this, we could have stopped him sooner. But instead, it was just dismissed. It was seen as, you know, that's in the past. No, he's a KGB agent through and through. And this is what the KGB does yeah. I'm curious. I mean, you mentioned the traumatization of the the Russian people and the fear that that Putin inspires. And I think I think one of the one of the heartening things that we've seen from this this tragedy is the the protests against Putin in the streets of St. Petersburg and elsewhere. I, I, I'm curious what you make of efforts to isolate Russian artists in the in the West. I, I, I can't help but feel like this is a mistake. Oh, I mean, they were the first ones. Uh, just to give it a broad turn, Russian intellectuals, you know, including filmmakers, of course, they were the first ones immediately to speak out about this. And um, so, no, I, I so just to give you an example, when we had our press conference for Mr. Jones at the world premiere of the film at the Berlin Film Festival, I was dreading having to do that press conference. I had this horrible feeling that there'd be these Kremlin plants in the audience. I had given talks about Ukraine at the at the National Arts Club, and in the middle of my talk, six Russians from the Russian embassy and the consulate walked out in the middle of my talk as though in protest. I was speaking on a panel at the Council of Europe, and some guy in the audience 
who claimed to be part of the Ukrainian delegation, but no one in the Ukrainian delegation knew who he was. And they all believed that he was from Russia and spoke Russian with like a St. Petersburg way. He stood up and like called me out on some nonsense and I had to clap back at him. So I, I have a history of going to these talks, giving talks and some Russian plant in the audience, you know, creating some disturbance. So I was fully expecting that at the press conference for Mr. Jones when it came out in Berlin. Instead, Russian independent journalists stood up one after the other and asked the most beautiful, thoughtful, supportive questions. They waited around after the press conference to keep talking to us and get as much information as they could. They showed up at the premiere later that night. They were so incredibly supportive of the film. And like I mentioned, there are these brave Russians that dare to show it in Moscow. And so I think we I think Obviously, there's so many Russians who are victims of Putin, along with Ukrainians, and they sh- they we have to be very thoughtful and careful and, and welcoming and, and giving space to them because they are traumatized as part of this. I had the most heartbreaking conversation with a group of Russians um, exiled to Warsaw, where they were asking me, "How do we talk about our history? Could you?" Ukrainians are so good at talking about their history and and promoting their history. How can we do it for Russia? That's the most basic question. They didn't even know where to start because they had been so brutalized with disinformation and and Putin's all-out war on historical truth. They needed baby steps to understand how to approach their own history, to bring healing and a light to their own history. So these are people who have been brutally traumatized. They've been repressed. It's important to understand as part of the KGB's sadism, they go after family members. They take away your livelihood, your ability to earn money. A Russian independent journalist set herself on fire out, outside of an office of an FSB because she was protesting. She was tired of, of, of agents coming in and harassing her at home and stealing her laptop. She broke down from the pressure. These are people under who have been under an immense amount of pressure. Putin started his terrorism first and foremost against the Russian people. If you look up David Satter's brilliant coverage of the Moscow bombings in 1999, that that arguably, given all the evidence, was a false flag event that justified Putin to go into Chechnya again and cre- create war crimes in Chechnya, completely level grossing to the ground like he's trying to do with Ukrainian cities now. So Putin's terrorism first and, oh, and, and in that, he killed um, one of Ukraine's top journalists as you know for her coverage of, of the war. So Putin's terrorism began first and foremost with the Russian people. And so it's important for us to keep that in mind and to give space for these folks. And and one ray of light I have is that um, Orwell wrote a letter, I believe it was to Aldous Huxley. Um, he wrote a letter to another writer saying that the refugees of World War II the refugees who are coming from countries like Ukraine and Russia and Poland were going to be a godsend because they're going to finally open up the eyes to the world of what of who Stalin was. And that is true. That is absolutely true. These witnesses came out and, and they continued the fight wherever they relocated around the world. One of the first things my grandfather did when he relocated to New York City was he joined with other Ukrainians to open a Ukrainian printing press in New York City. And they continued their their opposition work to um, Soviet terrorism that way. So a lot of these Russians who are leaving now and, and who have left over the years, wherever they go in exile, they're continuing their work. And I was recently part of uh, I was recently invited by a Russian friend to speak um, on a panel with with leading Russian human rights activists who have had to flee the country. 
And I asked them, I asked these Russians, I'm like, what do you want President Biden to do for you? And they said, keep us alive. Keep us alive. Give us immigration support. Give us security support. Give us financial support because we are the Russian grassroots resistance. We're the ones who are keeping the flame of democracy warm for when Russia will finally be ready. And so please support us. Keep us alive. Keep us doing our work. So I think it's really important for everyone to keep that in mind. I I think that's absolutely true. And uh, please, you know, whatever whatever we can do to help, we should. Um, I, I always like to close these interviews by asking uh, what I should have asked, if there was anything uh, you, you think people should know about Mr. Jones or about, I mean, frankly, about Ukraine and, and Russia, uh, what what have I failed to ask that I should have? I think you asked a lot of really interesting questions, and I greatly appreciate this, taking this break from the news by talking to you. It's, <laughs> I greatly appreciate this, <laughs> this, this bit of a breather you've given me today. Um, I would just highlight that Mr. Jones is a historical drama. It's it's made by Agnieszka Holland, who gave the world Europa Europa and the original version of The Secret Garden. And I think it's important to know that as this film was deeply personal for me to make, it was also deeply personal for Agnieszka Holland. Her parents, both her mother and father, were journalists in Soviet-occupied Poland. And her father's official cause of death was suicide while under police interrogation. So Agnieszka had a lot to say with this film, and she wanted it to not only to preserve history, to be a monument, to give dignity back to the countless victims, but also to be a warning about today and where we're headed and how this KGB sadism works and how to how to confront it and how too many in the West are complicit from journalists to big corporate interests, as you see in the film, uh, it's a warning for today. And one scene I want to point out is um, Waldorf Astoria, where we see Durante and the Russians toasting each other in the Waldorf Astoria. That really happened. When you see Gareth Jones in Ukraine watching the body collectors take a dead woman and throw them in the back of their cart of bodies while they're in, while her infant child is pawing at her, trying to wake her up, that really happened. Gareth Jones did not see it. My grandfather saw it. My grandfather witnessed that. And that was a common sight for back then. And right now in cities like Mariupol, Ukraine, you have bodies once again piling up in the street. And so the world cannot look away. This is a genocide. It fits the strict definition of genocide. Genocides begin with hate speech and propaganda. And that's all we've had from Putin with his obsession with Ukraine over several years. And a genocide is playing out once again. And the world absolutely must do more. And the world must get its act together. And if you're not going to do a no-fly zone with Ukraine, for the love of God, get them the planes, get them whatever they need, get them the logistical support, get them whatever coverage they need to keep their skies under Ukrainian control as much as possible. Because Putin's military, as we've seen, is not as mighty as everyone thought it was, right? It's been failing logistically on so many fronts, Two generals, two Russian generals so far have been killed. So many leading commanders have been killed. There's mass mass desertions, right? It's not a good military. It's crumbling under Putin's corruption. And, and it bought into its own propaganda. It's, it's failing on so many fronts. But we can keep Ukraine going by listening to Ukrainians and taking leadership from Ukrainians because they're the ones showing the world right now how to stand up to the KGB. 
Yeah. Andrea, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I know this is a tough topic. Everybody should watch Mr. Jones again. It's on Hulu. Uh, you can rent it on other VOD platforms. Um, but it's uh, one of the, again, one of the best films uh, I, I've watched over the last few years. Um, and certainly one of the best films about, you know, USSR atrocities uh, that have ever been made. There have just been so few. But uh, go watch those. Check out the event with Ignisha Holland and James Norton. It'll be worth your time, I promise you. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. And we will be back next week with another episode. See you guys then.